It's great to be together, and uh, we're going to be unpacking God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 14 this morning. We've been working our way through Luke. We've been exploring the message of Jesus, the Messiah, and this morning we're going to be looking at genuine discipleship. Last week, Tim was in chapter 13, and uh, he was reflecting on the question that Jesus is asked, are only a few people going to be saved? And Tim's response was to talk about, uh, talk about what Jesus says about there being a narrow way with a narrow door and the importance of being on the right side of the door when it shuts. And we know that Jesus says that he is both the way and that he is the gate, he's the door. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. It's all about Jesus. And like Tim, I'm convinced of the biblical promise that at the end of time, there will be an uncountable multitude of people worshipping God. That heaven will be populated and bringing honor to Christ who gave himself for us. Chapter 14 opens with Jesus talking about the need for humility. Humility about not thinking of ourselves, putting ourselves low and looking to him who is great. Humbling ourselves under his mighty hand. If we're to experience the eternal joy that God has for us. And then in chapter 14, Jesus hones in on what genuine discipleship looks like. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, genuine discipleship. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 25, and then we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. The words will come behind me. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and can't finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good. But if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has has ears to hear, listen. Wow. It's a challenging passage. 
I was reading uh, a commentary on Luke, and uh, it quotes a guy called William Barclay, who, uh, an old commentator, and who himself is quoting a great scholar. This scholar was renowned and uh, was very learned, and one day this scholar is told, so-and-so says he was one of your students. And the scholar replies, he may have attended my lectures, but he wasn't one of my students. It's always embarrassing when someone who we expect to represent us well doesn't. I remember years ago, uh, I was, uh, there was a couple of students in this one uh, lecture. There's only two of us doing the course. And uh, this lecturer was well-renowned in his field, wrote lots of papers, uh, lots of books. And uh, I, was one of his, uh, I was one of his students. That's what I would have said. And then one day I went for an interview in London with, for a planning consultancy. And um, I, I filled out, I, I sent them a CV, went for this interview. And on my CV, I'd written uh, the title of my dissertation. And it was all to do with this man's subject. So retail planning, really boring, okay. I, I didn't want to send you to sleep. And, um, and I wrote this, so I wrote the title of my dissertation. The issue was I actually hadn't done any work on it at all. It was just a title. So I went for this interview anyway. I went for the interview, and the guy into me said, he said, uh, we don't normally interview uh, people who are, uh, haven't got any work experience, but he said, I was so excited about your dissertation. He said, I, I, I wanted to interview you. Uh, uh, so I've, driven, I've gone all the way to London. The interview uh, lasted uh, for about an hour, um, but it really ended after about five minutes because he realized that I actually didn't know anything about the subject. And so, uh, this is true, he spent most of the time telling me about his holiday in France, his cycling holiday in France. <laughs> then he gave me the money for my train fare to go home. <laughs> the lecturer would have been absolutely embarrassed that one of his students really was not one of his students at all. And it's why Jesus turns to the crowds. There are crowds of people following. Not just Jesus' close disciples, there are crowds of people following Jesus. They're uh, milling around him. And Jesus starts to talk to them all, not just his close disciples, to all of them, the crowds as well, what it means to be an authentic disciple. He says, if anyone comes to me, if we want to follow Jesus, if we're thinking about following Jesus, or maybe we're already following him, Jesus is reminding us that discipleship is compulsory. There's only one way to be a disciple, and it's his way. It's not our way. Jesus is blunt. You know like when you get someone coming to sell you something and they're they're really convincing, but they don't give you the detail. They don't give you the small print. Jesus gives us the small print. Doesn't hold back. There's no hiding anything. Jesus gives it to us just as it really is. 
He tells us what discipleship, what the discipleship that he expects. He tells us what genuine discipleship is like. And sadly, the state of the church in the UK and in the West demonstrates that we have not listened very well. David Watson, uh, he's died, uh, died some years ago, but he was an Anglican uh, pastor and he wrote a book called Discipleship. And in 1981, he wrote this, Christians in the West have largely neglected what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The majority of Western Christians are church members, pew fillers, hymn singers, sermon tasters, Bible readers, even born-again believers or spirit-filled charismatics, but not true disciples of Jesus. If we were willing to learn the meaning of real discipleship and actually become disciples, the church would be transformed. And the resultant impact on society would be staggering. My prayer this morning is that God would do something in us that we would increasingly be his disciples. The first thing I want to say is this, is that discipleship is coming to Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me. Jesus personally calls his followers. We see that right through the New Testament. Jesus calls his first disciples. Some of them were, were fishing by the side of a lake and Jesus calls them. He says, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Comes to Matthew the tax collector. And he says, come and follow me. Comes later to Paul as Saul as he is then on the Damascus road and Jesus calls him to follow him. You see, we don't become Jesus' followers by making a decision to keep his teaching. We do it simply responding to his free invitation to come to him. But before we can uh, uh, grasp what Jesus goes on to say in this passage, we need to know who we are coming to. I want to tell you this, Jesus was and still is the most incredible person. He is absolutely incredible. I love that tongue and that interpretation this morning. I was, uh, they had no idea what I was going to be speaking on and that I was going to say this. But that was all about how amazing Jesus is. Did you get how amazing Jesus Christ is? He's astonishing in every way. He did things when he walked this earth that people had never seen before. He said things that confounded human wisdom. He talked about God in a way that people had never heard before. He talked about God as the Father. God is your Father. Amazing. He astounded people. He left them filled with awe. He spoke with authority. He brought good news to the poor, the sick, and the ne'er-do-wells. Religious people hated him, but those who were on the outside and uh, people who were ordinary, they flocked to him. He healed 
lepers. He touched them. No one would touch a leper. Jesus put his hands on lepers. People felt the touch of a human being for the first time in years because Jesus was next to them. He raised the dead. He forgave people's sins. He calmed storms. He delivered the oppressed. He fed thousands from five loaves and two fish. Jesus was remarkable. And people loved him. They began to appreciate that he was more than just a man, that he was the Christ of God, the Messiah, as we've been seeing. God's answer to this world's problem, sent by God to deal with our rebellion, our sin, our turning against God. And that's what he did on the cross. Jesus was completely man, yet completely God at the same time. He was warm. Caring, fun-loving. He was bold, honest, and holy. He never sinned, the Bible tells us. He's still the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No one holds a candle to Jesus Christ why wouldn't we come to him? Why wouldn't we run to him? Why wouldn't we be like those crowds who just came from all over Judea just to be near him? You see, we're created for a relationship with the living God, with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right at the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, they knew fellowship with God. We're told that God would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. And then Adam sinned, mankind turned against God, and that intimacy, that relationship with God was lost. And here we see in the Gospels, it start to be restored as people gathered, they flocked, they loved to walk with Jesus. They loved to walk with the Son of God. When they were with Him, everything seemed, the world seemed a different place. Hope filled their hearts. Discipleship is about walking with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who created you and formed you and has a purpose for your life, has a destiny for you. Jesus on the cross reversed Mankind said he dealt with our sin at the cross, that we might be forgiven, that we might know intimacy with God, that we might walk with him again. Jesus has come, he said, to bring life and life to the full. Discipleship is not a heavy thing. Walking with Jesus is the most precious, beautiful, wonderful thing we can ever know. It's a touch of heaven on earth. We can have the joy of his presence with us, knowing he's with us. I heard this this week, that the, the center of the most famous psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. Do you know what the very center of that psalm is? The phrase that's very, at the very center. You are with me. 
God is with you. If you're going through the valley of the shadow, He's with you. If things are going well for you, He's with you. If enemies are oppressing you, people giving you a hard time, He is with you. How beautiful is that? I've been uh, talking to a number of people recently. I was talking even this week to people who were t- talking about some of the dreadful situations that have been going on, circumstances in their lives. Talking about tragedies that are going on. And they're saying in the midst of this tragedy, the most precious thing is knowing the nearness of God with me. Him walking with me. That's what discipleship, that's what real discipleship looks like. That when your world seems to cave in and everything seems to be going wrong, you know he's with you. He never leaves you or forsakes you. Do we appreciate the privilege that we have? Wherever we are, Monday morning in that tough job that you're not enjoying, in that university lecture where there are people who are uh, ostracizing, setting you aside, not including you, where you feel left out, the privilege of knowing that he is with you. It's key to grasping what genuine discipleship is all about. Discipleship is coming to Jesus, the lover of our souls. You see, discipleship is deeply challenging, as we've heard. Jesus talks about that we must hate our parents, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, even our own lives. You see, familial uh, bonds are usually the strongest of relational ties. That's why we use the phrase, blood is thicker than water. And becoming a disciple of Jesus can break or damage those ties. When we become a follower of Jesus, it can have an impact. I remember years ago, a, a lady in Austria came from a very wealthy family. When she became a follower of Jesus, the family immediately disinherited her. Completely disinherited it. But Jesus here goes on to say that if we are to follow him, to be his disciple, we must hate our parents, hate our partners, hate our children, hate our siblings, even our own life. Wow. Really? I mean, there may be some of us here who say, actually, I, I can hate my parents. You don't know how bad they've been to me. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Does Jesus really want us to hate those that we love? When we hear something like that, we need to reflect and dig into what the Bible says. Dig into what Jesus says elsewhere. You see, elsewhere, Jesus says he expects us to honor our parents, which is part of the law. Read that in Matthew chapter uh, 15. Jesus expects us to love our our neighbor as ourselves. He even expects us to love our enemies. So when Jesus says hate here, he cannot mean hate as we would typically interpret it. He must mean something else. You see, hate is used in the Bible comparatively. 
You read about it in uh, uh, Malachi chapter 1, in Romans chapter 9, where it says, God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We read about it in Genesis chapter 29 uh, about Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah. And it says uh, the same, uh, it says about Leah in verse, uh, uh, verses uh, 31 and 33 of, of chapter 29. The word it uses in the Hebrew, it says it's the same word as hate. That he hated Leah, but he loved Rachel. Really? In effect here, I want you to get this. We're being told that God loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. And Jacob himself loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. It's comparative. He's not saying he hates him. He just loves this person more. Now, equally, we're told that there was John in the New Testament was the disciple that Jesus loved. Did he not love the other disciples? Of course he did. But we're told that he had a special love for John. Equally, God loved Esau and Jacob loved Leah. Jesus' point in saying this is that our relationship with him must come first. We must love him more. But Jesus isn't expecting us to to just be determined, uh, unfeeling obedience. Devotion demands love. Annie expects my love. We've been married for 34 years, but she, my devotion, she expects love. She expects me to love her. It's not enough that I put the bins out. It's not enough that I help her around the house when she asks me to. It's not enough that I do those things. She expects my devotion. It's not enough. It's not enough that we do the right things for Jesus. He demands, he expects our love and devotion. He expects us to love him. He expects our passion. He wants to be our beloved. Jesus loves the devotion of the woman in Luke chapter 7 who wastes, wastes a vase, an alabaster vase of most expensive perfume by pouring it over him. He loves it. He loves her devotion. He says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for that's that's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Do you love much? Do you love him much? Do you know what he's done for you? Do you revel in what he's done for you every day? Do you wake up and say, God, thank you for what you've rescued me from. I am saved. You're my savior as we were here in this morning. Because when you do that, when you do that, you can't help but love him much. You see, we can do all the right things but have lost our first love. See that in Revelation chapter 2. You're doing the right things, but have you lost your first love? Throughout history, 
and in other parts of the world, following Jesus has resulted in his disciples being ostracized from family, sometimes even martyred. But nowhere, nowhere does Jesus say we aren't to do our best to love and honor our families. Think about Jesus' own care for his mother as he hangs on the cross. As he's bearing our sin, he sees his mother and he says to John, this now is your mother. Effectively care for her, look after her, love her. You see, Jesus' challenge here is no excuse. Jesus' challenge to be genuine disciples is no excuse to sacrifice our partners, our families, our friends on the altar of serving the church. It's no excuse unless they're causing us to not love him more. Jesus must come first in every stage of life, we're told. Whether it be children to parents, parents to children, within marriage, within our families. We must even love him, he says, more than ourselves and our very lives. Tim Keller, the Christian author, said, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more about myself or thinking of my, less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It's thinking about him more. Remember Jesus' questions to Peter at the end of John chapter 21. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? His question to us this morning is, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in a prisoner of war camp, German prisoner of war camp, as the Second War ended, because he was a disciple of Jesus. And he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We read Jesus here saying that his disciples, to be an authentic disciple of Jesus, we must carry our cross. Discipleship involves carrying our cross. Anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow him, he says, can't be his disciple. I mean, that is shocking language. It was shocking in the day. It's still shocking now. Carrying your cross in the day could only mean one thing. Every condemned criminal had to carry his own cross to his place of his crucifixion and his death. It was part of the savage humiliation of crucifixion. The cross spoke of suffering and shame. And Jesus walked that way for you. Jesus went to the cross and suffered the shame and the humiliation because he loved you deeply. He gave himself for you. He laid down his life that you might be forgiven by his Father in heaven, that you might have a Father in heaven, that you might be filled with the Spirit. And as we walk the same path, we identify with him, and he identifies with us, and he walks with us. We are now in Christ. That's what the obedience that comes by faith means. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. 
Lastly, discipleship involves cost. Coming to Jesus is free, but it's not cheap. A person carrying their cross couldn't change their mind. If you're a genuine disciple of Jesus, you might have felt like this, but you you can't do this. You can't say, oh, it's getting a bit tough now, I want to give up. If you're carrying your cross, that's it. Someone carrying their cross couldn't say, right, okay, sorry soldiers, I've had enough of this. It's not working out well for me. It didn't work. They're going, they are condemned. They're going to a place of execution. When we have put our trust in Christ, we have died to our old life. We've, we're dead to it. That's what baptism is all about. When we get into the waters of baptism, we're identifying with Jesus. We're saying, you went to the cross for me. You died for me. You went to the grave for me. And then when we go under the, we're going under the water saying, Jesus, I'm dying to my old way of life. And when we're coming out of the water, we're saying, Jesus, I'm raised to new life in you, just as you were raised from the dead, raised by the, from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. I am being raised from this water, and I'm going to live a new life for you. I've died to my old life. I'm going to carry my cross daily. I'm going to put you first and put myself last. You, your honor matters more than anything else. Discipleship involves cost. If we're genuinely followers of Jesus, then what Paul says of himself in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 is true of us. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you get it? I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because he loves me that much, I'll do anything for him. He set me free from my past, my shame, everything I've ever done wrong, and he's introduced me to his Father. I have access, as we heard this morning, to a Father in heaven who loves us. The weight of the cross was a long, slow walk. It wasn't a firing squad, it wasn't the gallows, it wasn't an injection, it was a long, painful, excruciating walk. Sometimes our lives can feel like that. The cost of following Jesus. It's a long walk. But I want you to know this. Jesus went through it for us. And for Jesus, it wasn't a glorious moment. It wasn't pain-free. The end was clear. He knew what was going to happen on the cross. But ultimately, Jesus knew it would end gloriously because he would be raised from the dead It would end well. Jesus doesn't promise us anything different. We all face a long, slow death to self. Yet he does promise to be with us. He is with us. He promises that he'll send his Holy Spirit to help us 
to comfort us, to counsel us along the way, to give us strength and give us peace. And in the end, it will be gloriously worth it. Jesus talks about the importance of counting the cost. We do need to realistically weigh up the time and effort and cost involved. You see, Jesus, if we're a genuine disciple of Jesus, he has a call on the job that we do and in the way that we do it. You may work for the most difficult boss you think in the world. You're not really working for him. You're working for the best boss in the world who has you in the center of his gaze and has your best will at the center of his purpose. You may be going through difficulties in work, but God is with you and for you. If you're a a genuine disciple of Jesus, then it, university, how you live your life in university matters because he's your master. The person we marry matters. The way we handle relationships matters. Our attitude to money and possessions matters because he is our Lord. Discipleship will impinge on every area of our life. And starting well and not finishing well will rightly involve ridicule. No one knows the twists and turns of life that lie ahead for us. We don't get to write the script. He has. And the end is brilliant. Jesus says, discipleship involves consistency. He ends by talking about salt. Salt is good. It's a preservative. It's good for seasoning. I mean, I love salt. I put salt on everything before I've even tasted it. It's a bit annoying for the cook. But salt is useless if it loses its saltiness. Apparently, salt could remain salty for up to about 15 years. We are expected to be disciples, salty disciples for the rest of our days. And he will help us do that. I spent a few days this last week with Terry Virgo, who uh, was the founder of, of our group of family of churches. He's a wonderful believer wonderful Christian. Terry's in his 80s. I tell you, it was precious listening to someone in his mid-80s who still loves Jesus passionately. He's still genuinely pursuing him with all his heart and soul. Terry will be preaching here next Sunday. It's a privilege for us. We want to be those who are genuine disciples to the end. Bonhoeffer said this, salvation is free but discipleship will cost you your life. He also said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. There's a challenge in what we're reading, but I want to tell you it's a challenge out of the truth that he loves you. He's amazing. Otherwise, this is just heavy trying harder. This is the greatest joy we will ever have is following Jesus Christ all our days. 
He is the most brilliant, brilliant saviour. I say brilliant because he's, he's the light of the world in his brilliance. He shines and he shines light into every dark corner. If you think, if you think you're too far, you're too lost, you're, you've made too many mistakes, his brilliance shines into your dark corner and he can set you free even today if you put your trust in him. He's a saviour that's worth following all your days. Let's stand together. The bands will come and join me. Let's just, let's pray. Jesus, we want to say this morning that you are magnificent. Jesus, you are glorious. There is no one like you, Jesus. You are the Son of God. You were there before time began with the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit, you planned that Jesus would come to reconcile us to the Father, to save us. Father, it was your great plan. Jesus, you broke into this world, but born of a virgin. We believe it. Jesus, we believe that you were completely man and completely God. We believe that you walked this earth just as we do. And yet you didn't sin. Jesus, you are perfect in every way. You are the most magnificent Savior. Whenever we read about you, you win our hearts again and again and again. And we say, Jesus, thank you that because you died for us on the cross, our sins are forgiven, our past is dealt with, and we are free. We are free. The slate is wiped clean. We have access to our Father in heaven who loves us. We're beloved of God. And whatever this life holds for us, whatever difficulties ensue, you have promised you will never leave us. You are amazing, Jesus. We worship you. We give you our hearts again. We want to follow you all our days. We want to be passionate for you. Holy Spirit, come on, fill us afresh.